according to Luke 22, part 2, spoken by Pastor Peter on. Well, you know, I, I realize that when you love someone, you really want to appear to be great in their eyes, don't you? Like when you like somebody or when you fall in love with somebody, uh, you want to look great in their eyes. I don't know about you, but I, I'm like that. And I remember when I started to really start feeling, having strong feelings for my wife, Jenny, uh, in college. Uh, I really wanted to look great in her eyes. And, uh, and what I thought sort of would sort of allow her to see my greatness would be for me to kind of impress her. That was sort of what I thought. To be great in her eyes, I got to impress her. And so I heard that she was going to watch a pickup basketball game that I was going to play in one day. And I got so excited that she was going to come, I made sure I called all my friends who were not as good as me in basketball, all right, because I want to impress her with my athletic ability. So I got guys that played that never played basketball in their entire life. You got this guy from Korea, never touched the basketball, didn't really know what the game was, but I said, come on, just play with us. It'll be all right. He made me look so good. He made me look so good. Jenny was there. She watched me play. I thought I kind of impressed her, and, you know, I kind of thought she probably thought I was pretty good. But I realized we've been together for about 18 years in marriage, and I realized that if I really want to look great in her eyes, I really have to learn to submit to her more. And I have to learn to love, learn to love her the way she deserves to be loved. And I realized that's where greatness comes from. We live in a culture where I think we embrace greatness, don't we? You guys know the acronym GOAT, the greatest of all time? We idolize the GOATs in our society. People like Michael Jordan. Right? I grew up watching him on bat in basketball. Maybe today the greatest, the GOAT right now might be uh, LeBron James. People like Tom Brady, Steve Jobs, technological genius. He was able to kind of set culture in place by telling the people what you want and what you need in the future, even before we even knew we needed it. Right? People like that. And we look at people like Oprah Winfrey, who just kind of transcends more than just what she used to do and more than having a talk show host. She is a, a symbol of inspiration. And so we love looking at people. We kind of idolize greatness. We have a joy. We, we get excited about looking at people who we feel like are great. And I think many of us, we want to be great too in the eyes of others, especially those we truly care about. The disciples were the same way. They were no different from you and from me. They had this Passover meal with Jesus. Who Doug did a great job preaching it last Sunday. And they had this sacred meal with Jesus. And now they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They argue like that, even after they had that great sacred meal with Jesus. And Jesus catches wind of it. And what he does is that he shares with them how they can be great in God's eyes. And, you know, we've been in this journey in the Gospel of Luke for the past 15 months. And I do hope that as you've been in this journey, you have been more deeply enamored, deeply more in love, more committed, uh, wanting to live your life in greater obedience for God because you've learned the beauty of who God is. You've learned his ways. You've been able to embrace the teachings of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that you really would have grown in your love and devotion to Jesus over the past 15 months. Don't you want to be great in his eyes? Don't you want to be great in God's eyes? I hope that would be a passion and a discipline that you will live with for the rest of your life. Well, in order for us to be great in God's eyes, we need to know what we have to do, right? And Jesus teaches the disciples, and he's going to teach us today how we can be the goats in God's eyes. And so if you have your Bibles, please do turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Look at verses 24 through 38. Today is actually Palm Sunday, which really inaugurates the week before Jesus' death on the cross, right? And we've sort of, we touched Palm Sunday a few weeks, actually a few months ago, about a month and a half ago or so. And so we're literally on the eve of him being arrested, 
right? Actually, on the night in which he is going to be arrested. And so tomorrow at our Holy Week service, we're going to be talking about Gethsemane, right? And then we'll talk about the next day of him being arrested. And eventually, we're going to go all the way to Good Friday. We'll get to his crucifixion on Good Friday. So you got to join us with worship services. We have it every single day in our church office, not here, from 6 to 7 o'clock. All right, we're going to be going through the entire Gospel of Luke. And so when Easter comes, we're going to be focusing directly on the resurrection. So we're going to make a major jump next Sunday. If you miss Holy Week services, all right, you're going to miss a lot. And so hopefully you're engaged with us through that. But how do we be great in God's eyes? Look at verse, uh, Luke chapter 22. Look at verses 24 to 38. Luke 22, verses 24 to 38. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not able to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fall, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciple says, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. So, God, we come to you today, and, um, Lord, this is the evening in which you are going to be arrested and eventually crucified on the cross. Take us back, God, to that moment 2,000 years ago as you are in the upper room with your disciples. As I'm sure your heart was heavy, realizing that you're going to have to die, be crucified on that cross, and yet your disciples were arguing who was going to be the greatest. Thank you for this teaching because you teach us, God, how we can truly be great in your eyes. And I pray that for all of us in this room, that you would be our magnificent obsession, that you really would, God, and that you would help us, Lord, to live our lives wanting to be great, not in the world's eyes, but in yours. So I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray that it will be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 Well, when you look at this passage, Jesus shares with us three things in how we can be great in God's eyes. And the first thing that we learn in the story is that to be great in God's eyes, you and I have to have a posture of serving, 
okay? We have to have this posture of wanting to serve much more than wanting to be served. All right, look at verse 24 again. Let's kind of go through this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The disciples were so concerned about who was going to be the greatest, but their occupation, or what they were so consumed with, was about who was going to be the most powerful. When you and I think about greatness, we associate that with power. It's very natural. And we find that the disciples were doing exactly that. That they wanted to figure out who was going to be the most powerful, who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus enters into this scene and he says that in order for you to be great in God's eyes, it's got to be completely upside down from how you define greatness. He says that if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. You and I have to be willing to serve. You have to be like a young person who serves older people. Back in the first century, in a Jewish context, the younger ones would always serve the older ones. In fact, you didn't even have to have a relationship with them. If they were younger than you, you could say, hey, get over there and grab me my shoes. And they would have to do it. Even in the Korean culture, there is a term for that. It's called hube. If you are a hube, your older, the elder can say, do this, and you would just have to do it because you are younger. And so there's this idea, this posture of serving one another. And Jesus says, of course, we live in a context today, in a culture where being served defines that you are great. But he says, if you want to be great in God's eyes, you and I have to be willing to serve him. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Isn't that so un-American? Because nothing in that culture in which you and I live in today defines greatness by serving in that capacity. In fact, we always want to try to find this hero, the hero. We want to find this person who kind of defies all the odds in some ways. But Jesus is saying, if you just want to be great in God's eyes, if you want to be the goat, you just have to learn to serve, not have a desire to be served. And he says, look at me. I'm the son of God, and I didn't come here to be served. I came here to serve, and he did exactly that, didn't he? In fact, when you look at this passage in John chapter 13, You'll find that Jesus has his Passover celebration with his disciples, but before that, he actually washes their feet. Because in the Jewish custom, as you enter the home of someone, Jewish people, because they wore sandals in the deserts, their feet were disgusting. So when you enter into somebody's house, you know who would wash your feet? It was a slave or a servant. And they were in the upper room by themselves. There were no servants or slaves there. Somebody had to wash their feet. And what does Jesus do? He gets on his knees and he washes every one of his disciples' feet. And even Peter was like, what are you doing, Jesus? You can't do this. And he says, if I don't do this, you'll have no part of me. And Peter says, well, then dunk me even with water then. I want it all because I want you. And after he does that, he says, you too all must learn to serve. To be great in the eyes of God, you and I have to be dedicated and willing to serve one another. In Philippians chapter 2, it's called the hymn of Christ, a beautiful beautiful discourse where it says that Jesus Christ, though he was God, it says that he made himself into a servant or a slave. Same word. And he became one of us. And so listen, if you want to be great in God's eyes, which I hope you do, I want to be great in God's eyes. You got to have a posture of serving rather than being served. 
You see, the point is, is this, that when you and I are not in that posture of serving and we're in this posture of wanting to be served, and I realize the older I get, the more I want to be served, especially when you have kids. Like my kids are older, I always be like, hey, get me this, get me that, get me this, get me that. Like you just want them to serve you, right? And it's great. As they get older, they become like your little servants. And you can have them do things around the house, and it's fantastic. But it's not really because we have this mentality that the younger you are, you got to be the one serving us. Right? But it's really, Jesus says, if you want to be great in God's eyes, it's got to be the other way around. And those people who are so interested in power and being great, the sad thing about people like that, which I know very well, I, used to, I, used to, I struggle with this, I do, is that you constantly find yourself comparing yourself to other people. Because to be great, you've got to be better than other people. In order for you to determine if you're better than them, you've got to compare yourself to them, right? And here's the sad thing about this. There will always be somebody more prettier than you, somebody more smarter than you, wealthier than you, more successful in every way. And for us to live this life where we want to be the greatest in the world's eyes will create this desire for us to constantly compare ourselves to other people. And as a result of that, we, start, we struggle with depression. I believe if we stop comparing, if this, if this world in which you and I live in today can stop comparing ourselves with other people, we would probably eradicate, I don't know, maybe eradicate's a hard, strong word, depression. So many of us are depressed today because we feel like we are not experiencing the kind of life that we'd hoped and we dreamed that we would. Men go into these midlife crises and now they're going into them even in their early 40s and late 30s. Because why? Because they compare themselves to other people and they realize, I don't have what they have. And they get depressed as a result of it. The disciples were so consumed about power. And when you are consumed about power, it's about you being more powerful so that others will be less powerful than you. It is not the way of God's kingdom. It is not the economy in which God operates. He wants you to operate in the sense of serving one another. Because you know what happens when you serve one another? You know what naturally begins to grow inside of you, which is much better than power? It's authority. Authority is so different from power because power can be destructive. It can be. If I have a gun... And I say to you, give me your money, you would give me your money. Why? Because I have a gun. I'm using an abusive power to make you do something that you may not want to do. By the way, just a little caveat. I am so proud of the people in this country, the young people who stood up yesterday and marched millions and millions of people on the streets and saying, all lives really matter. Standing up against gun reform. And I'm just, it's great to see our people come together and congregate like that. And this word greatness or great, I mean, we hear that word and many of us, it has a negative connotation today. But God does want you to be great in his eyes. Power is not what he wants you to live for. He wants you to live your life in a posture of service. And when you serve, you gain authority. And when you have authority, it is something that is truly divine. It is something that you can achieve through buying it. You can't buy authority. Because the only way you can achieve authority is through serving other people. It's through sacrificing one another. Years ago, I heard the story about a Catholic diocese in suburbs of Philadelphia, and what they wanted was that uh, they wanted to build a safe house for young teenager women, girls, girls, teenager girls. These girls were struggling with drugs, recovering drug addicts. Some of them was, were prostitutes. And so they wanted to build, this Catholic diocese wanted to build this nice home or safe home in a pretty wealthy suburban area in Philadelphia. Well, listen, if 
in the nice suburbs in which you and I lived in, if a church wanted to open a safe house, build a safe house, would you be in favor of it? Maybe you would, but this suburb said no. Because it was going to drive down their real estate value of their homes. And they said, if you build a house like this, potentially what that can sort of create is a lot of bad people might come into our neighborhood. And we don't want that for our children. We don't want that at all. And so we do not want this to happen. So there was a big town hall meeting. Councilmen's were all there. And it was the day that they would vote. And everyone was there from the town. And they were protesting and saying, we do not want you to pass this. And so the council board all unanimously voted against the building of this safe home. Mother Teresa was in town. And the diocese asked if she would come and be at this council meeting. She came kind of late, and they voted already. But as she walks through the doorways, and she goes to the front where the councilmen's were, she got on her knees, and she went like this. And she said, in the name of Jesus, will you please allow this church to build a house for these girls? In the name of Jesus, will you let these girls be safe? The place was dead silent. One of the councilmen raises his hand and he says, I rescind my vote and I vote in favor of this home being built. Every other council person follows suit and they all voted in favor of this. Everyone in the room decided that this was the right thing to do. Why? Because Mother Teresa had power? No, she had authority. She walked in there and she had authority. How did she have that authority? Because she devoted her entire life serving the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. And because she walked into that room, everyone knew when she got on her knees and she said, please, there was an authority that they could not say no to. What would have happened if Mark Zuckerberg went in there? What would have happened if Bill Gates went in there and said, hey, could you please say yes to this? Do you think the council people in the town would be in favor of it? No. They have power. They have billions of dollars. But they don't have authority. They don't have that kind of authority. And in God's economy, if you want to be great in God's eyes, it's about your posture of willing to serve people, even the least of these. And when you do that, you gain authority. And look what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 28. Look at what he says. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus said, you have been by me during my toughest times, although they will fail him in just a moment. But he's also believing that they're going to serve, his, serve him in his kingdom while they're here on earth. And as a result of that, what does Jesus say? He says, I give you authority. You're going to eat at my table, but you're going to have authority to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, authority cannot happen unless you and I are willing to serve. And so I want to encourage you. Will you be open to living a life today where you think about serving other people before you are being served? This is very difficult for us because we live in such a self-consumed, self-centered culture in which you and I live in today. Will you think about serving the other person as opposed to you being served first? When I ask you that, and for those who are here, and this is your church, could I ask you, seriously, on Sundays, when you come here, when you, and I love it that you're a part of our church, do you think more about being served than wanting to serve God. There are a lot of ministries in this church that you can be a part of, a lot of ways in how you can serve our church, impact his kingdom here in this community. I hope that you would really consider it this week. Think about and pray about it. I mean, last Sunday, we didn't even have a guitar player up here. 
I bet you there are 25 to 30 people in our church that know how to play guitar. And I bet there are about five of you that play it at a professional level. Come on. We need you. Our setup team, our breakdown team could use more people to help set up this church. We're portable. Our production team, our youth, our, our student ministries. There's so many areas where you can get involved and be a part of what God's doing here where he invites you weekly to potentially transform lives. There's a lot of things going on even on the weekdays that you can get involved in. If Sunday doesn't work for you, to be great in God's eyes, he's, Jesus says, you got to be willing to serve. you got to have this posture of serving others rather than wanting to be served. It's completely un-American to live our lives this way. But Jesus calls you to be Christian first before you are an American. Amen? Amen. Let's serve. Let's serve. Second way in how we are great in God's eyes and how we can become the GOAT is when we fail forward. You and I, we got to learn how to fail forward. You see, it's not a matter of if you're going to fail. You will. We all will fail. It's a matter of how you're going to fail. And it's about failing forward. All right, look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fall. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Peter's denial is very significant for us. I'm thankful that Peter denied Jesus three times. You know why? Because we can learn how you and I can recover when we fail God. Anyone here never fail God? I'd love to meet you. Love to know your secret. I'm so glad Peter failed Jesus because if Peter can fail Jesus, all of you in this room, we're going to fail Jesus. And many of you have, and I have multiple times. But how do we learn to fail forward? That's the key, right? Judas didn't fail forward. He fell backwards, right? There's a stark, stark difference between Judas's betrayal and Peter's betrayal. Because for Peter, he was just trying to create a distance or a separation publicly from Jesus Christ. Judas really took active action against Jesus. Peter wanted more Sort of he was scared and he was nervous of being associated with Jesus. So he thought maybe he might die. And so he decided to say, I don't know the guy. He did it three times. But Judas really had a failure of heart. That's the major difference between those two. All right. And what we learn from this story is this. That anyone who thinks that they are too confident that they will never fall in certain areas of their lives, you are most susceptible to falling. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. And so Peter reminds us how you and I could begin to fail forward, right? How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I think there are a few things that's really that, that, that Peter was able to sort of do eventually. And then when you look at the gospel, when you look at the book of Acts, Peter's a different person, isn't he? There's a deep reason why that is, right? But the first, the first thing of how you and I can fail forward, because I think this is important because sometimes failures really destroy us. It really does so much so that because some of you have failed in your lives, you know what you've done? You've exempted yourself from doing anything for God because you think you're not worthy. Could you imagine if Peter believed that? That he was not worthy anymore and he decided just to kind of relax and not do anything? The church would have never got started. We wouldn't be here today. And so a lot of us, because we failed God maybe, we exempt ourselves from doing things that maybe God may want us to do. we got to learn how to fail forward, and Peter teaches us this. So one of the things that really will help you to fail forward is simply this. Respect sin. Respect sin. You got that? If you disrespect sin, it will destroy you. 
If you think that there are certain sins that you're not going to participate in, be careful because you're very susceptible to falling into that sin. You and I have to learn to respect sin. What do I mean by that? I'm not saying you got to worship sin. I just want you to know that sin can destroy your life. Sin can destroy your marriage. Sin will do all sorts of things to your mind to make you believe that something is okay when it's so wrong. you got to respect sin. Remember we talked about repentance a couple weeks ago? Repentance isn't just about you asking God to forgive you of your sins, but it's about pivoting and walking the opposite direction of your sins. In order to make that pivot, you got to create a plan, don't you? Making a plan for how you're going to deal with a certain sin or sinful patterns in your life is really about you respecting it. And you might fall even though you respect it, but you're going to learn how to recover because you have sort of a plan to deal with it. We've got to learn to respect sin. Amen? Because if we can't expect respect sin, we're not going to be able to recover from it. We're just not going to be able to recover from it. I hope you have some people walking with you in your life where you can share that stuff with the greatest way in how you can fail forward because it's not a matter of if you fail it's a matter of when the other thing that's really helped me and what we see here in the story is we have to learn to lean on the holy spirit lean on the holy spirit all right um jesus praised to the spirit that peter would fall but he would be able to get back up and also what would he be able to do strengthen the brothers meaning serving his brothers You see, when you and I fail forward, it's an opportunity for us to get up and connect and serve our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Jesus prayed to the Holy Spirit that Peter would be able to recover from this fall because it was a mighty fall. Because Peter, I mean, you talk about Peter not respecting sin. What do you say? He said, I'm ready to go to prison with you, God. Jesus, I'm ready to die for you. I mean, can't you relate to him? I can so relate to him. Like, shh. I'm going to go to prison with you, Jesus. I mean, I'll die with you. Let's go up, sit there, in the, stand up there on the cross with you. Right? He didn't respect it. But you see Peter changing completely at Pentecost in, in the beginning, in the first chapter of Acts, when he receives and he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's a different person. No longer does he try to separate himself publicly from Jesus. He now is integrating his life and everything he does, his ministry, in public because he wants to associate himself with Jesus because he doesn't care if he dies anymore for the gospel. He doesn't. And if you know the story of Peter, he was crucified upside down. He says, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way my Lord was crucified. Crucify me upside down. That's how he died. He was martyred for his, for, for his faith. How was he able to do that? Because he leaned on the Holy Spirit. Metro, the primary function of the Holy Spirit isn't to scare you. Some of you think, whoa, man, the Holy Spirit. I don't know about the Holy Spirit. Because some people say, man, the Holy Spirit told me this or that. And sometimes you might think that's kind of like an odd thing, right? And sometimes you get scared because it's, you think it's just power. And, and it is. But you know what the primary function of the Holy Spirit is in your life, in my life? Jesus says is helper. He's our helper. The Holy Spirit is there that God's given you and I. That if you say yes to Jesus, you've already been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And in order for you to continue to live your life with God regularly uh, in the Holy Spirit, so you need to constantly be filled with the Holy Spirit repetitiously over and over and over again. Many of you have this helper with you by your side, but you're choosing not to seek help from it. 
And that's a sad reality. I want to encourage you today that those who feel forward rely on the Holy Spirit the way Peter did. And when you, look at the, when you look at the book of Acts, Peter was persecuted, and when he was thrown in jail, and after he got out of jail, he was rejoicing and celebrating because he couldn't believe he was worthy enough to suffer for Jesus Christ. Can you believe that? Can you believe how the Holy Spirit was working in his life so much so that he got beat up and thrown in prison, and he rejoiced that God would consider it worthy enough for him to suffer? How, if you suffered for Jesus today, how many of you would rejoice about that? I don't think a lot of it. I don't know if I would. But that's because the Holy Spirit hasn't been your helper. Let the Holy Spirit work. But best thing I do every day is that as I pray, I always end my prayer by this. I say, Holy Spirit, I give you full authority over my mind, my body, my spirit, my soul, my emotions, my thoughts, my heart, my will. Take full authority over my life today. Are you even praying to the Holy Spirit and asking him to take authority over your life? Start doing that, and you'll start to get more integrated, more connected to God in that way, right? You'll learn from your failures, and you'll know because the Holy Spirit will allow you to receive God's grace in such an explicit and tangible, concrete way that you're going to be able to rise back up and just walk and live for God in that way. That's how you feel forward. The last thing in how you feel forward, is it up? Okay, good. Uh, and how you feel forward is that uh, you need to know that Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Peter didn't know it. He said, I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. Jesus said, no, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tonight. You see, when you fail, you're not surprising God. I just want to let you know. Maybe you'll lessen the blow. He knows that you're going to fall. But what he's praying for you in the spirit about is this. How are you going to respond to that? Are you going to be able to get back up and feel forward and learn from it? Respect that sin going forward and say, you know what, I'm going to do battle with that sin because if I don't, it's going to destroy everything that I love in my life, especially God. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Why? Because he created you and me. And our creator knows us so much better than we know ourselves. And let that sort of give you comfort as you fail, then you can recover from that. But let it also give you encouragement. May it empower you. To know that if God calls you to do something with your life, just do it. Why? Because he knows you better than you know yourself. He really does. It's amazing that when you you believe that with all of your heart and mind and soul, it's this freedom. Because now you know you can do whatever God calls you to do. Because you know that he knows you better than you know yourself. Right? And so for some of you, like, I've been able to sit in the front row seats of some of your lives. And I've met some people who really have taken this to heart, saying that they know that God knows them better than they know themselves. And as they sense, and see, the privilege that some of you get, a majority of Christians today, you may not even know why God put you on this earth. Unless you really seek it. But for some of you, God has spoken to you. And he's told you what he wants you to do with your life. I've been able to sit in the front row of people's lives where they have received that from God. And they've been able to follow it. And man, to see what God's doing in their life, it hasn't been easy. But there's just a blessing. One example is Scott Kwok. He's a missionary now in Thailand. He came to this church many years ago. He was, a, he, he was an entrepreneur, had a company, sort of like an um, e-commerce company. He was doing so well. Then it went under because the, the whole dot-com industry just kind of blew up. And he struggled. He, he even contemplated suicide. 
And while he was here, God was just able to heal him, and, and he was serving on our staff as Zamele. He was overseeing, becoming, he was the executive director of Zamele. But God called him to be a missionary to Southeast Asia. And he struggled with that for a little bit. He even came to me and said, hey, what do I do? And originally, selfishly, I said, you should stay in Zamele. All right? Because that's still missions. But he kept praying. And he said, no, I don't think that's the right choice. I was like, all right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> I said, all right, go, go to Southeast Asia. And it took him a few years, but he's there now. And, you know, uh, in November, early November, uh, I'm putting this out to you. We're going to be taking people from the church, whoever wants to go, and we're going to spend about a week, about eight, nine days with Scott, looking at what's going on in Thailand and Southeast Asia, especially Thailand, dealing with human trafficking and different things like that. If you are interested in being a part of that, I'd love to invite you to see what God's doing through this missionary. Very unique stuff, very cool stuff. I've been able to see people sort of just accelerate and their life flourish as a result of it. But then I've also been able to sit in the front rows of some people who said no to God, even though they know where God's calling him. And then... And I've seen the pain and the hurt and the lack of peace and sometimes the chaos that is their lives because they ask God, what do you want me to do? And God reveals it and they say, you know what, like Peter, no, I know myself better than you. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And listen, I'm here to tell you that if you think it's too late for you to do maybe what God's called you to do and maybe you dodged it years ago, it's never too late, Amen. God can redeem anything. And, you know, I dodged it. I dodged it for four years. God, when I was a senior in high school, he called me to be a pastor. I went to college. I said, nah, he's wrong. There's no way he wants this guy to be a pastor. And so I worked in the marketplace for four years. And then God called me into the ministry. He recalled me back into the ministry. And I'm thankful for those four years because I understand your life much better now. I know what it's like to work a nine-to-five kind of. Well, actually, my, my job was a little bit longer than that. I did more production stuff. But I know what it's like. To work, I know what it's like to be in a part of a job where you don't really like it. I know how dreadful Sunday evenings can feel because you got to go to work on Monday. God can redeem it all. He knows you better than you know yourself. So will you just trust in him and learn to obey? Right? That's how you fail forward, Metro. That's how you fail forward. The very last thing, and then I'm done. All right? We're great in God's eyes when we are prepared to face opposition. We are great in God's eyes when we are prepared to face opposition. Look at verse 35. Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was, and, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, uh, see, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus says, that's enough. Get up. Let's go. It's funny because the disciples thought he was talking about a literal sword. And, you know, back in those days, it wasn't very rare. It wasn't very uh, odd to see a man carrying a sword around. They were able to do that back in those days. And it's interesting because here are the 12 disciples. They should all have all had a sword, but only two of the 12 had it. Right? But they said, here, Jesus, here's a sword. And he says, that's enough. I'm not talking about a sword. In fact, he rebukes one of the disciples because when Jesus gets arrested, the disciple takes a sword and cuts an ear off of a soldier. And Jesus says, what are you doing? That's not why I came here for. So what Jesus is doing here is that he's trying to help them to understand. He says, when I was with you, you lacked nothing. I protected you and I provided for you. But he's saying that I am going to die now. And because I'm dying, I will no longer physically be here with you. 
And he's saying, you need to prepare yourself for the opposition. Because you're going to be living in a world that if you stand true to me, the world will not love you. It will not love you. And preparing ourselves for opposition is to prepare ourselves in a way that we are not drawn nor attracted to wanting the world to love us. This is hard. Because Peter wanted the world to love him. That's why he denied Jesus three times. And so all of us, this is an area that we will struggle with. We have to get to a place where we can say, you know what? I don't want the world to love me anymore. Because if you live for that in your life, if you want the world to embrace you and love you in that way, I am telling you, you're not living for Jesus. And Jesus is saying that if you live for me, because we're living in a world where people are giving their sinful natures over to the, to the enemy, to Satan. So what do you expect this world is going to be? You think there's going to be like beauty? I mean, there is some beauty to this world. But there's going to be chaos. There's going to be destruction. There's going to be evil. It's going to be ugly. By the way, I was, yeah, like I said, I was so encouraged. We were, my wife and I were in Boston yesterday, and we saw so many young people just walking around, marching for justice in our country. It's great to see that. But Jesus is saying that you and I have to be ready because there is an enemy that's trying to destroy us. And when we live our lives for the approval of other people, you can't be great in God's eyes. You have to get to a place where you don't care what other people think about you. And I would even go as far as to say even in the church. Because if you're living for the applause and the accolades, you will be sorely disappointed. He's saying you got to prepare yourself for that. So how do we prepare ourselves for that? How do we create that sense of toughness and a focus so that we don't, we, don't, we don't look for the world's acceptance and care? He's saying it's got to be you. you got to find that kind of support and that toughness and that strength in one another, in community. That's it. If you and I want to be great in God's eyes, if you want to really prepare yourself for the opposition, you have to dedicate yourselves to a church community and experience, you know what? Intimacy. Turn to your neighbor and just say the word intimacy. Come on. Come on, boys. Let's go, guys. Speaking to you. Oh, it's a hard word to listen to. Like, <laughs> if one of the guys in that just went up to another guy and says, hey, I want to be intimate with you. Like, hey, hey, hey. Relax. All right, relax. Intimacy is not a word that we really embrace. In fact, we just associate intimacy with sexuality a lot of times. But God created you for it. That's why we're creating in his image. The three are one, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three are one. That's some serious intimacy for them to be oneness there. And we are called to be intimate with one another. And why is that so prevalent? Because you know this theology that we've been teaching in our church almost every Sunday. Jesus says, when two or more gathered in my name, I will be there. I will be there. When two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there. Jesus will be there to protect us. He'll be there to guide us. He'll be there to strengthen us when we are willing to live in intimacy with one another. This isn't just a place where you come worship and listen to a sermon. I mean, that's a part of it, and that's a beautiful thing because there's something beautiful about the body of Christ coming together, doing that. But you know what this is? You know what God really wants from you if you want to be great? To stand and be prepared for opposition is to live in intimacy with one another. And that means it can't just be kumbaya, although I, I love the kumbaya moments because they're fun and easy. 
But in order for us to experience intimacy, what it means is that we have to be willing to work even through conflicts with one another. Because oftentimes conflicts are the fuel in how we become more intimate. The moments where my wife and I have been the most intimate are actually through conflicts. We've been able to work through it. And it's just such a beautiful thing when that happens. When we can talk it out because then we can learn to love each other more. Intimacy, God's called you and I for intimacy. I was in Chicago in January and... Um, I, I went to a pastor's conference, and, uh, you know, I, I go to these things every year because it's, it's our denominations uh, conference, and a lot of our pastors from our denomination come. Um, I am now considered one of the old guys there, and so, like, I'm no longer, like, a church planter, you know, because we're, we're going to be 14 years old next Sunday. So we're kind of old now. We're getting, we're, like, young teenagers. And so when I go there, a lot of these younger guys that just start churches, you know, they, they kind of want to sit down and maybe connect with me, kind of pick my brain, you know, and things like that about church planting. And so I love making myself available to some of those guys. This one guy I met, I met him just like, kind of like we had, like, a church planter's party in somebody's hotel room. And we're just kind of chatting. I just see him. I'm like, hey, what's up? And we just started chatting a little bit. And I said, tell me a little bit about your church. And he said, oh, he started sharing. And I was like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. I said, what's the name of your church? And he says, oh, the name of our church is The Hug Church. <laughs> I said, excuse me, I think I heard you wrong. I thought you said it's The Hug Church. What's the name of your church? He says, no, you heard right. It's The Hug Church. And my friend and I, we're sitting there, and I'm thinking, this guy doesn't know how to create a name for a church. Who names their church the Hug Church? Like, good luck in trying to reach guys, right? Like, hey, Vinny, what church you go to? Oh, man, I, I go to the Hug Church. What'd you say? Guys, look what Vinny goes to. He goes to a church called the Hug Church. I mean, just, I mean, that's just not going to sort of create feelings of like, I want to be a part of that church. And so when he kind of left our conversation, my friend and I, we were laughing. We were like, who names their church? The Hug Church. This is crazy. He's got to change that name. I got on the website that evening because that really intrigued me. And there's animation in the beginning. I'm not animated, just videos of people hugging. Everyone just hugging each other. Hugging, hugging, hugging each other. And I was just like, well, okay. Laughed at that a little bit. But then I started reading about the church. And its vision is to be a safe place. That's it. And they feel like the, in how you can feel safe is to know you only feel safe with the people you hug. I thought, that's beautiful. Because what is a church really about? It's about intimacy. It's about forging intimate relationships with one another. Because get used to it, folks. We're going to see each other for all eternity. And if you can't stand each other now, come on, now? You think you're going to be able to do that in heaven? There's no sin in heaven. But we're called to be intimate with one another. And I saw the church and I was reading up on it and I said, man, you know what? I know it's not very, like, masculine. It's kind of odd that I go to the hug church. It's a wonderful church. They want to do wonderful things. They want to create a safe place for people so that they can be intimate. Why? Because they, we live in a world that wants to oppose us, that wants to come against us. And the only way that we're going to be able to stand, Jesus is saying, is that we got to be able to stand tall and be in community. Because when you are in community, I will be there with you. Come on, do you want to be the goat for God? I want to be the goat for God. And Jesus says that if you want to be the goat, you have to be willing to serve one another. You have to fail forward. And you got to prepare yourselves. For opposition. I hope that you'll be great in God's eyes by living 
according to those values that Jesus wants you and I to live in. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer.